opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives. I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left, Chris? Well, we know who the hard left are. <laughs> in the you know, ascendancy I, within, the, within the Labour Party who associate with the hard left. You just said so that we were right, too right wing. The hard left agenda printing money, nationalisation without compensation, that sort of hard left wing position, hard sort of left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, 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 Webster's dead, or at least they buried him. But every time there's a thunderstorm around Marshfield, they say you can hear his rolling voice in the hollows of the sky. And they say that if you go to his grave and speak loud and clear, Donald, Donald Webster, the ground will begin to shiver and the trees begin to shake. After a while, you'll hear a deep voice saying, Neighbor, neighbor, how stands the union? Then you better answer, the union stands as she stood, oak-bottomed and copper-sheathed, one and indivisible, or he's liable to rear right out of the ground. Welcome. Welcome to another exciting episode of The Real Politics. You're joined by myself, Tom, uh, Jack Frainreed over there in the corner. Hey, guys. And a very special guest. We've got Violet in. Hi. Violet. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> Today we have Violet. How do I pronounce it? Violet Luca? Luca? Yeah. Violet Luca. You are a digital producer and host of the Film Comment podcast. So it's interesting to kind of get another film podcaster onto the show and to discuss the politics and also one film in particular that we're going to be discussing today on the show a john wayne film we finally got there yeah john wayne film on the real politic john um, wayne the absolutely boy. before we get on to the <laughs> <laughs> the obviously dialectically correct john wayne um this podcast is now a hundred percent unequivocally pro john wayne <laughs> So before we get into Mr. Wayne, Violet, could you tell us a bit about what you do and uh, also tell us a little bit about the uh, Film Comment podcast? Sure. So I've worked at Film Comment. I started off as an intern and then I became like a part-time person and now I'm a full-time person. And basically what I do, I manage Film Comment is this magazine that's been published since like 1962, more or less regularly, (laughs) starting in the mid-70s. Uh, there was always money problems. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's sort of a long running film publication in the U.S. 
based out of New York and I manage all of their, you know, like lay out all the website, lay out all the stuff in the app. I do the podcast, which sometimes expands upon feature articles that were in the magazine or just sort of like one-off funny things that we feel like doing. So yeah, that's sort of my day job. And then uh, I try to be a good uh, leftist when I'm not there. (laughs) (laughs) You're a member of the DSA, aren't you? Yes. Oh, that's cool. So when did you get involved with them? Like most people, it was after the election. I was like feeling, I mean, I, you know, I had been sort of interested in being, it was, it was, it's hard, sort of hard to describe because it's like there was so much like, I was feeling a lot of frustration towards Obama, probably starting in the second term. I was like, you know what? I'm really, I really don't feel like apologizing for him drone bombing people like I'm really sick of like making excuses for this guy and I didn't really have a place for that to go and then I was listening to Chapo Trap House and they were talking (laughs) about PSA yeah (laughs) and so I was like oh you know they're not afraid to say socialist unlike there's another group called the Justice Democrats and I was like that sounds like fucking lame to say socialism I've never heard of them (laughs) are they like people who would sort of call themselves progressives you, do you know the Young Turks? Have you ever heard of oh, that? Oh, yeah, I know the Young Turks. Yeah, so like Sank Eager, I don't know how to pronounce his last name really. He's like big into them. Like that's sort of like his pet project. Right. Okay. You did an episode of the Film Comment podcast, didn't you? With Will Menneker from Chapo, where you it talked did. about the cinematic oeuvre of Steve Bannon. <laughs> who i mean for me is up there with d'souza like in the pantheon of the greats oh i'm so that makes me so happy to to hear you say that because it was it was like i can't understate like how terrible watching those were it's just like somebody who just is complete and utter disrespect for their audience it's incredible (laughs) good i'm glad so where do where do we go from there that will make it sound like we were just talking about Steve Bannon, and now we're talking about something else. Blah, 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 Steve Bannon, cocaine heart attack, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> the, cre- the creature from the Black Lagoon, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so, like, yeah, I, I, th- I guess we've um, we've given you some idea of, of uh, talking to our listeners. <laughs> so I did make that clear. I guess, yeah, we've given you, our dear listeners, like some, some idea of Violet's resume, and where she's coming from politically now, which is obviously an acceptable place, enough for us to invite her on the show. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get stuck into the main portion of our show, we do need to take a minute to hand out a prestigious Real Politic Award. The award for the MP who has treated the media in the most appropriate manner goes to Labour's Shadow Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, Debbie Abrahams, who apparently promised a story to the fucking cryogenically created, strange test tube man, Paul Woff of the Huffington Post, or War, or like, however you say his name. She apparently promised him a story about something that the Tories are doing, like compulsory beheadings of disabled people in the streets or something, one of their their new welfare policies. And then later on, Paul War got a call from her or her people, and they were just like, yeah, actually, we've decided we're going to give the story to a bigger outlet. And I, for one, say fair play to Debbie Abrahams and her staff. Like, 
fuck Paul War. <laughs> well, well done. Fair played. Excellent conduct. And I say that without a trace of irony. In fact, I was planning to award Paul War the prestigious Real Politic Award for the most petulant and entitled journalist for his <laughs> 19 tweet unthreaded thread just going oh. off at Labour's media strategy. However, Raphael Bear came back into my life in the most beautiful of ways. The Guardian's cardigan incarnate Raphael Bear, who I won't air this particular grievance about Raphael Bear, but all I will say to you, Raphael, all I will say to you, other than the statement, isn't it funny how shoes aren't shaped like feet, to quote your classic Guardian piece, all I will say is, do you really think that's okay? (laughs) Oh my god, well, I'm just going through Raphael Bear's history on The Guardian, and this is so funny because there's like a whole sort of cottage industry in New York of like, I'm leaving New York essays. And this guy, <laughs> goodbye London essay. <laughs> they have been a fixture, in fact, in the British press over the last few months. It's interesting that that's been happening in New York as well. I mean, it's but- been happening for at least like two years. It's been a thing. Like everyone, it's just like they like I have a machine in a basement somewhere that just prints them out, and then like they're like, "Oh, slow news! That's a guy who's leaving Brooklyn because he got married or some shit." <laughs> but the other side of the coin is that you have people like Ian Dunt, this fucking like shit journalist who like I don't even know where he writes for apart from he's like joint co-deputy editor of Erotic Review, whatever the (laughs) fuck that is. (laughs) But he's just this weird, like, leering fucking potato-looking man with, like, this fucking handkerchief in his top pocket in his Twitter profile picture. But he's always just like, God, why would anyone ever want to leave London, the greatest city in the world? It's just London, 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 London. Why don't you just go and fucking marry London if you love it that much, Ian? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I don't know if New York has an equivalent of Ian Dunn. I certainly hope you don't for your sake. (laughs) (laughs) I don't. Well, that's the thing. I think like, I think it's like kind of a boring, like normie opinion to be like, I love this city. If somebody says that you're like instantly suspicious of them. So even people who are like terrible don't actually say that or put it into writing. Like (laughs) greatest city in the world. I think that's just too much, but I mean, I'm pretty sure that laying into Paul Wolf and uh, war, I can't, I can't pronounce his name. Paul War and Raphael Bear was the main thing I wanted. No, I've just remembered, actually. There's a school we've got to settle on the show. So after Paul War came out with his 19-tweet unlinked thread, his hysterical fucking meltdown about how Labour had, like, given a story to, like, somebody with a bigger media platform than him. (laughs) A journalist who we know called Abby Wilkinson, like, you might know her as well, like, I think some people in America are familiar with her. Yeah, she always, like, writes really well. Basically, Abby was like, I don't think this is a good look. Journalists acting this sort of entitled to sort of be waited upon hand and foot by politicians... And immediately, Owen Bennett from a Huffington Post 
he went for Abby. And incidentally, the Huffington Post, that's where Paul War works. So mm-hmm. this really was just Owen Bennett just chugging on his boss's dick <laughs> in the most unedifying, sycophantic fashion. And Worf also started DMing Tom Mendelssohn, another journalist we know, just basically saying, because Tom wrote like one mildly critical tweet about him, he just sort of DM'd him saying, wow, is it true that your journalistic career isn't isn't doing very well despite going to Winchester College in Oxford? <laughs> not, not mad at all. No. Like, Paul Wall was not mad, he was not red, he was certainly not nude. <laughs> so basically, Abby tweeted, IMO journalists publicly complaining about minor difficulties in doing their job is a bad look. Save it for the pub or your partner. And Owen Bennett stormed in. Presumably no one had invited Owen Bennett to hack drinks. Like, he, he, <laughs> like, <laughs> he wasn't down the pub that night. And he steamed in. But, you know, it's great to get advice from someone whose idea of journalism is speaking their brains and not actually finding news. Speaking their brains. Yeah, speaking their brains is an odd phrase. But, I mean, we, we can't all be an intrepid journalist like Owen Bennett, to be fair, who finds news in the unlikeliest of places, such as on the Real Politic podcast, where I believe he, he... I believe, and as I've previously stated, not interested in defending this allegation in a court of law. I'll pretend that nothing ever happened if if it comes to that. But I believe he sourced his Huffington Post exclusive about how Clive Lewis registered certain domains along the lines of cliveforleader.org.uk last year. Incidentally, that exclusive dropped two days after we revealed that on our podcast. So <laughs> Owen Bennett, he knows how to do the graft. He knows how to do the work. He knows how to dig and quote-unquote, find news. And, you know, we would like to commend him for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Holly, you've written for Sight and Sound as well. Yeah. Did you review uh, Trumbo? Yes, I did. We'll have to talk about that as well on the show. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, it has to come out, yeah. Yeah, I also wrote, a while ago, I, I wrote a piece about, like, these weird, unfunny movies these quote-unquote black comedies that are about, like, Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. Um, Yeah. Got an example of, like, one of them? Well, they're really weird because they're all very, very similar in who the characters are, the traits of the characters, what they do. War Dogs is one, and that has Miles Teller and Jonah Hill. And then there's Whiskey Tango Foxtrot with Tina Fey. And then there's Rock the Casbah with Bill Murray. Oh, yeah. And all, and all three of them are basically like these losers who can't hack it in America decide to go to, you know, either Iraq or Afghanistan. I also included a hologram for the king. Oh, what because that I just Because it, that's like, it's basically like propaganda for Saudi, right? Where it's just sort of like, <laughs> you know, like. They're, they're they're different from us. They have their different ways. But, you know, they're not so bad because uh, they don't enjoy capitalism there. Look how grotesque it is. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
So I wrote, I wrote, basically wrote a feature sort of interrogating those four movies. And again, it's like very strange because it's like the first three. So War Dogs, Rock the Casbah, and Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, they're really like so identical in a way that's like super suspicious, at least to me. They're supposedly these dark comedies where they're like kind of like trying to make fun of these cultural differences but they're just kind of grotesque and insensitive. And then in the end, you don't even comment on the war itself. It's just sort of like the war is just sort of happening. And backdrop. It's just really, yeah, it's like a backdrop in like the worst way possible. And it's such an indicative way of like how people think of these wars or just like even like sort of a symptom of like the Obama era where it's like, they're kind of winding down. Sorry about but it. One of, one so, of them and you I did mention Rock the Casbah. I have heard of before, but I just knew that it had been absolutely just demolished in various yeah. reviews. Is that the worst yeah. of the bunch? Would you say? Oh, I don't know. I mean, War Dogs is like horror. I mean, I really like Jonah Hill. I think he's actually a good actor and very funny. Yeah, I would actually probably say yeah. Rock the. It's easy to say Rock the Casbah is like the worst because it's just like Bill Murray's like way past his prime. It's Barry Levinson. Like, Barry Levinson is just, like, fucking awful. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. He's done a handful of decent films, hasn't he? Barry Levinson. I mean, I think he, he's kind of... Yeah, I guess, a long time ago. He's pretty mediocre. He doesn't have, like, a distinct style of his own. He's just done this, like, mishmash of all different types of films. And sometimes they're, like, wag the dog. And you're like, okay, this is good. This is yeah. good. And sometimes they're, um... Shit, I didn't realise he writes as well. That's That makes it even more sort of weird that there's no, like definition to his style of filmmaking i'd say a british equivalent of him is stephen frears oh yeah big yeah, time oh my god probably, although I, I mean i probably prefer stephen frears he's done a handful of really, really good movies especially back in the 80s i like his blair trilogy as well <laughs> <laughs> oh god tom we need to do an episode on the deal his blair brown film yes uh, yes yes i'm guessing you wouldn't really want to talk about the queen on the show it's not <laughs> it's the one you'd probably want to stay away from i don't mind the queen i I'd be able to do you talk really about do you quite like whole... yeah we could talk yeah. about the whole right. Blair trilogy if you want might as well yeah a lot we of content there that. I reckon yeah man it's good stuff but not all great like it's weird in the special relationship Bill Clinton warns Blair that he's like getting too right wing and it's like fuck <laughs> off <laughs> <laughs> Like, they were both deep into that find the third way. Tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, pro-business, pro-war. Did you read the transcripts of their conversations? The Blair and Clinton conversations? I I haven't read them, no, but I imagine that's what Peter Morgan partially based his script on. Probably not entirely, but... (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, it's so clear from, like, those. It's just, like, they're totally feeding off of each other. They're both just sort of like, yeah, no, it's fine. Fuck poor people. No, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) party it doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) yeah that whole 90s school of centrism is so fucking insidious and the media is just occupied like almost entirely by just like fucking bow-tie dipshits who came up during that time and their politics is just like Wash stuck in era, yeah. 92 if they're in america or 97 if they're in the uk <laughs> <laughs> just, just pathetic those were the days those were the days for them not so much now on those films you're talking about violet the war films that aren't really about war i saw whiskey tango foxtrot and yeah just like just just it's supposed to be satire i think it's just if you do this kind of nothing comedy drama in a sort of 
semi-geopolitical setting as a filmmaker you're just kind of like yeah bring on the plaudits i've done a tough satire <laughs> but they forgot to actually comment incisively on politics at all right i mean it sucks because those guys are really funny yeah that writer director team is like they're very funny and like you know like i love you philip morris is like so it's like everything that was good about that was because i also and i point this out in my article like the army has to sort of like sign off on all these scripts so there's a yeah. good chance that even if somebody wanted to comment on these in a really biting or interesting way they were like oh no you know just like drawing access through it all so Especially because yeah. conflict is still going on. I feel like that also sort of makes it harder to, like, dig in and do that work. I mean, it felt dodgy enough, like, Zero Dark Thirty, the fact that it was, like, co-written by the CIA. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but with a, with a comedy comment, <laughs> commenting on... Her best director was her, her script was co-written by the CIA. Isn't that, like, neoliberal feminism in, like, a nutshell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that was pretty fucking bad, but like, I feel if you're making a comedy about current events, you kind of need to take a step back and not have like the military signing off on everything. Yeah. Oh, totally. Well, that's why Starship Troopers is so good. It's because it's not really <laughs> the army, some other army, but also actually the army. Bit of Paul Verhoeven. Another film that I feel could be added to your list is Army of One. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's where Nicolas Cage just plays this fucking weirdo with an annoying voice, and he just sees a vision of God played by Russell Brand, and God tells him that he needs to go out to Pakistan, because people knew by that point that that was where Bin Laden was, and to try and find him and kill him or capture him. Wow. As this not cropped up on your radar no unfortunately but yeah this sounds like it would definitely fit <laughs> <laughs> it's directed by larry charles who did borat oh um, yeah oh i remember hearing that sucks because he's like sort of good sometimes larry charles yeah he he's worked on like curb and seinfeld religious was terrible obviously i think that's what when i was like 16 i was like yeah man this is telling it how it yeah, is it, <laughs> yeah Exactly. And then you sort of kind of grow, you're like, oh, wow, no. And then you look at the state of uh, Bill Mayer now and it's just like, oh, no. It's just, oh. just a repulsive fascist apologist who looks and sounds like a fucking nonce. He's not even funny. He's so not funny. I know. He just kind of sneers and then his audience laugh in the right places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, did you ever read that thing where um, Norm MacDonald talked about being on the show and he's just like, do you understand how fucking awful it is? Like, he does this unfunny bit right while you're sitting there, and you have to, like, sit there and laugh politely. <laughs> like, it was so amazing. Like, Norm MacDonald was like, fuck that. <laughs> Should we turn to Big Jim McLean, then? Sure. Get down to business. We've got to get it over at some point. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is... Uh, I was hoping it would be one of those films full of just hilarious dialogue. And don't get me wrong, there is like some genuinely hilarious bits in there that we'll talk about. But for the most part, it's a really boring movie. And it's only an hour and a half long. <laughs> it's just... This is the hearing room of the House of Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities. We, the citizens of the United States of America, owe these, our elected representatives, a great debt. Undaunted by the vicious campaign of slander launched against them as a whole and as individuals, 
they have staunchly continued their investigation, pursuing their stated beliefs that anyone who continued to be a communist after 1945 is guilty of high treason. Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I stand on my constitutional rights under the Fifth Amendment and refuse to answer the question on the grounds that I might incriminate myself. Permit me to ask you one further question. In the event of armed hostility between this government and that of Soviet Russia, would you have called upon willingly bear arms on behalf of the government of the United States? Same question, same answer. It trudges along and it's, it's, it's like a political thriller. It's, like it's a political thriller kind of leaning into sort of noir elements in places, but not quite. It's a really weird... Yeah, I mean, should we outline the plot? The so plot. sort of the, the basic setup. Okay, so John Wayne wanted to go on vacation to Hawaii, so he's like, but let's fight communism too, so they wrote this movie. <laughs> Where you got to I now want to rewatch the film for that take, and I think the whole <laughs> film will open up now. So, John, you don't like those communists. Well, how about we pay for you to go off to Hawaii, and you can just put together some sort of, you know, anti-communist picture, and you get a free holiday, and, you know, it only has to be 90 minutes. This all works out as well. But, yeah, go ahead. What is Big Jim McLean all about? So shall I do it? Shall I do the honor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah, you know, this is my country. So it's... My country, tis of thee. Yes. <laughs> so it starts off with the um, House Un-American Activities trials, and they're complaining about how these poor guys who are just trying to protect America, you know, this board of these ghouls are being sort of criticized mildly. By the press. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just like making these red-blooded Americans sick. Played, of course, the two main characters, John Wayne and James Arness, who was on the long-running show Gunsmoke. So, obviously, John Wayne, known for Westerns, Jim Arness, known for Westerns. They're these two, I don't even know what you would call, I don't even know what governmental agency this is, like the anti-communist section of the... American Activities Committee, I think, yeah, they're investigators, yeah. Yeah, just like HUAC investigators, I guess. Like, I guess they had people going about just, like, knocking on doors, banging heads. Yeah, but I don't understand. Like, because it's like, I mean, obviously there's the committee itself. There's, like, literally those people. But these are, like, dedicated. Again, they would have to be part of some other government, like the CIA or the FBI. I don't know. It doesn't really. They're just sort of, like, guys in uh, double-breasted suits and, like, fedoras who are sent to Hawaii to check out this possible, like, communist plot and um along the way <laughs> big jim mclean played by mr wayne he takes himself a wife and i feel like part of the reason the movie just kind of doesn't it feels weird is because like so much of the movie is about him like either flirting with her or flirting with that other woman like it's just like so much yeah. <laughs> oh yeah there's like the comedy scene comedy in inverted commas where he, he has to take the woman out to dinner she insists and she won't give him she's like his source and she won't give him the information all right so she's his landlady and she just won't tell him anything unless he like has dinner with her and like pretends to enjoy her company and she's just portrayed as just like this fucking awful person who's just just trying to like ingratiate herself with him and he just finds her like 
skin crawling. Yeah. And it's just really weird. It's a strange diversion to have this kind of like farce scene where his love interest, played by Nancy Olsen, she kind of gets a bit pissed off. He's dining with this woman because of the case. And so, and she like just goes out with some like random tosser in the same <laughs> restaurant. And they're just like sitting over there eating. And then he goes over to them. And then the woman's husband turns up like, Aah! and isn't he a communist, her husband? No, her tenant was a communist who is okay. drugged by the communist party because reasons. <laughs> like they thought he was going to talk or something. And so they like shoot him up with all these drugs. <laughs> goes out and acts crazy and draws a bunch of attention to himself. I don't understand. These communists are very bad communists. But that's sort of the twist that's revealed at the end. Because isn't it like, don't you feel that they're implying that they're not actually communists, that they're like fascists? So at the end, they have this thing. I was saying it to Tom earlier, where the higher ups in the Communist Party, they're saying to the people who are like working for them, they're like, we'll promise you this and you can have this. Well, you'll get all that when we set up the communist society. And then like the bad guy turns around to the other bad guy and he's like, ha, little do they know. Once we get the power, the gulags will be open to something. (laughs) (laughs) They're talking about who they can and cannot purge. They're like, you can kill these other guys, but we really need, like, Joe and Smitty. Like, it's so weird. (laughs) I far prefer to work with mercenaries. You recite the obvious. These domesticated party members, these dedicated communists, they make me sick. We need them until we take power, then liquidate They're portrayed as the most kind of two-dimensional bad guys. Just sort of, yeah, they're interested in everything from insurance fraud to the sabotage of a US naval vessel. Their revolutionary praxis really confuses me because a lot of it just seems to be organised crime. (laughs) And you can see why that played into, because of course Big Jim McLean was what it was released as in the United States, but it was a very different film when it got released in Europe because it had a different title and that title was marijuana yes (laughs) that's what i'm talking about (laughs) so it didn't go down well in america Uh, but they weren't ready for john wayne's bold 100 percent unabashedly pro-marijuana stance they couldn't take it (laughs) he was ahead of his time (laughs) but you can tell that the way a lot of kind of the dialogue is and the way it's shot how it would have been easy for them to redub, reshoot the odd scene to give it a European release. But I don't see why they gave it more of a marijuana theme for European markets, because I don't really think Europe were that anti-marijuana, really. I'd, so I don't think it really would have done well over there, to be honest. It was really kind of just like a dead end. For them. I mean, I think maybe just because it's a tropical setting, and it probably makes more sense that you would go to Hawaii to, like, stop marijuana <laughs> than to stop communism. <laughs> maybe that was their thought. I'm sure it turns up all the time on TCM. No, TCM shows, like, actually good movies. They show some... <laughs> So, like, by 1952, I mean, I will say that's kind of strange that it didn't do well because the fall of the House on American Committee really didn't happen until, like, the late 50s. So, yeah. and this came out in 52 when I should note that 
John Wayne was 45 years old. So the idea of him, like, I don't know. I think it's just super weird that somebody would be that old and a bachelor and then suddenly pick up a wife in Hawaii. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing, like, with those old leading men, they always tried to sort of just pump up the masculinity to, like, incredible degrees. Like, the way that they always had Bogart standing on boxes and, like, the women acting opposite Bogart, like standing in trenches and stuff to cover up the fact he was incredibly short. (laughs) There's, like, the disgusting uh, nympho that he's forced to take to dinner. They always keep remarking on his height, you know, six feet four, and she's like, ooh, 76 inches, mmm, 76. And it's just, like, so lascivious in that, you know, emphasizing... His dominance and like what a what a great representation of America we have here. It's just a big old white guy. <laughs> Grim. If you think it's awkward in Big Jim McLean, you should see it in Rio Bravo when he's like is it Angie McDowell in Rio Bravo just seeing John Wayne kind of you know, she's his love interest now. Now that is awkward to watch in Rio Bravo. And that was from fifty nine. And that's when he's really starting to get into his fifties there, so my goodness. I'm reading on the Wikipedia page, because I only use the best sources, that <laughs> Nancy Olsen was a liberal and hated the script, and she'd argue with Wayne on the set, but she would always let Wayne have the last word. It's like, why? This guy's a fucking cunt. Maybe I guess it just wasn't worth the bother. He'd just keep going, and she'd just be like, fuck it, this guy is an idiot. <laughs> it's like, there's so much made about what can somebody do with a bad role, and it's like, Really? Not a whole lot once you sign on. Like, you kind of, <laughs> once you're in, you kind of got to do it. And you <laughs> as much as you want, but ultimately it's going to go in the can the way the star who's like, exec- I don't think he exec produced it, but it's like the 50s equivalent of that. Oh, no, he did actually produce it. Yeah, yeah he was gonna, yeah. co-producer with Robert M. Fellows. Oh, yes. Because later on in his career, a lot of his films were produced through Bat Jack Productions more so later on because he was trying to keep a sort of appearance out there in Hollywood and Big Jim McLean was the first film released under that production company but yeah it was known at the time as Wayne and Fellows Productions and then became according to this a source the Wikipedia source uh, from 1956 onwards as Batjack Productions so yeah he obviously was completely invested in it then in his anti-communist picture well and what a thing to invest yourself in What a a picture. What what an ideology. As we say, it's just kind of a tedious film. There's not much of John Wayne really, like, busting communist heads. Like, there's a big punch-up at the end. Really awkwardly filmed. Oh, yeah, when he fucking bops that guy out the window. Yeah, no, that That was good, actually. (laughs) That was cool. (laughs) That was the one bit where I was like, yeah, (laughs) anti-communism pro-Americanism, rugged masculinity, actually good. Yes. (laughs) But so much of it is just, like, him taking this woman to dinner. Or, like, like, of a mountain with her. It's really weird. And, like, the other thing that struck me weird about this formally, there are, like, three different narrators. So, like, the opening begins with a vision of Daniel Webster's grave. I don't know. Did you guys read the Wikipedia entry on who Daniel Webster is? I didn't know. <laughs> well, like, Daniel Webster, he was a congressman, and he was in this debate. It's weird. Like, this guy was basically, like, an early sort of, like, I don't want to say right-wing meme, but just, like, a, I guess a meme of Americanism. Just, like, you know, all that is good. But he, John Galt. 
he wishes he wishes he could i mean because like now like no one really talks about him at all like he really doesn't figure into like i had to really look him up but he was debating this guy from south carolina and in the second debate over like protective tariffs or something and this was during like andrew jackson's presidency and andrew jackson was i mean probably the first worst president we've had several worst presidents since then (laughs) (laughs) including the current one but he basically he gave this very rousing patriotic rebuttal during the second round of this debate, which was later incorporated into the Gettysburg Address. And so he became sort of like this symbol of America. He was like he's like from New England. So he's I guess he's not as like prone to being like lionized as like, you know, more southern politicians, let's say. So he opens on his grave and there's a narrator for that. And then there's a guy who narrates the HUAC committee. And then John Wayne narrates the part of the movie that he is in every scene of. <laughs> Yeah, I, that is odd. I mean, it's quite a slapdash and sort of like totally inconsistent film, as we were saying. And it can't sustain any kind of suspense. It doesn't work as a thriller. Well, the comedy and... is doing exactly what we thought they were doing, which is so bold. <laughs> and that just is like the most tedious, like just nefarious shit. They're just, uh, you know, they've got their fingers in all the pies. They're just doing a bit of everything, like a bit of <laughs> bit of crime. Yeah, just just all the crimes. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much just just anything kind of bad and seditious, the communists are at it. Plus, presumably a bit of communism as well. But if they talked about the actual politics, then they'd be, you know, giving a platform to communists. So they don't mention anything about what communism is, what it's about. Exactly, yeah. exactly. In fact, Violet, didn't you review a recent film that came out, Trumbo, for I... Sight and Sound? Yes, I did. And you found that that tried to depoliticize the blacklist. Oh, very much. I mean, it basically turned... I mean, it's funny because this film sort of does it too, but it turned left-wing politics and communism into like a free speech issue. And you hear it a little bit in this movie too, which is like kind of scary. (laughs) You know, (laughs) you've reached this point where you're trying to like lionize this figure who had legitimately radical politics and put them into his films. And was not afraid and, like, stood up and was like, you know what, this system is fucked. I'm not going to, like, rat out my friends. Uh, Trumbo is rad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the one thing I'll say about, the other thing I'll say about Trumbo is that, like, Dalton Trumbo has famously, you know, been talking about screenwriting. He would be like, you know, it's all about silences. It's all about these, it's it's not the words, it's, like, how you use silences. Oh, God, especially in a Johnny Got His Gun. Like, that's a fucking harrowing film. Like, it's just the most claustrophobic thing I've ever seen. Or even, like, Roman Holiday. Like, the part at the end where they just, like, exchange glances and, like, that, like, how that silence is used. And Trumbo, the movie, is just, like, nonstop fucking talking and, like, big speeches and, like, just the most boring, like fucking tv movie bullshit that you could possibly come across and like hey <laughs> is like he's so bad he can't even Louis like ck yeah he like can't even like lie in a bed and die believably <laughs> <laughs> no? and he's like he looks like afraid of brian cranston in all of their scenes where he's like oh my god i have to act against this guy Ugh. it's so bad and it's just like and then like edward g robinson comes off as like this horrible monster and it's, it's, it's like all <laughs> it's all a bit like 
a little too much. So it's not really quite what happened, let's say. John Wayne disappear yeah. in Trumbo, doesn't he? Well, not the John, John Wayne, <laughs> but a, an actor playing John Wayne appears in the film, doesn't he? Very briefly, and it's isn't it like at a scene where is it in some sort of like awards ceremony or like a kind of industry drinks get together yeah. and they kind yeah, of they too. confront one another, yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't Trumbo say to Wayne like he tells him which regiment he served in during the war, and then he asks like Wayne, so which one did you serve in? Just, just obviously trying to piss off Wayne because of course he didn't serve in the military during the Second World War. It was a discharge due to health a condition or something like that. Fucking pussy. <laughs> 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 fucking Mel. He was probably just like he would have been in like his like mid thirties, and like that guy's like not in shape. Like you can't fucking put him. I don't want him to be back in America. Sit this one. <laughs> but that always kind of grated on him, didn't it? That he hadn't fought for his country, um, and didn't John Ford, I think, fucking own him by in some film he did about like war or something all the major stars in it he had like their military rank after their name and then it was just john wayne <laughs> That's awesome. uh, I well i know that john ford actually shot the d-day invasion and then afterward he was like so traumatized by it he just went on like a four-day bender because he like <laughs> because you didn't know because no one had like words for like trauma back then it was just like Oh, Dad came back from the war and he's quieter now. Like, that's yeah. <laughs> and so just people are just like, oh, I'm just gonna just drink myself to death, or I'll just be uh, quietly traumatized by the insane shit that I saw. But John yeah. Wayne never had that problem, so he instead decided to like take it out on fucking communists. Yeah, under on Americans of the age that they could be enlisted in the 1960s when he put out the Green Berets. In fact, we might even be able to talk about the Green Berets for a minute, because I think, Tom, you said you've seen it, haven't you? Tom? Tom! Sorry, one sec. My, there's, there's just, I, basically, where I'm recording, there's, we have a hamster right across the way. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that. Basically, I have where I'm recording from, there's a hamster right across from me in its cage that keeps making fucking noise. And it's <laughs> and if I if I keep my microphone on, it's going to keep going into the conversation. And it's so oh, What are you doing? A, what are you doing? I, <laughs> it's trying to make its bed and it's just stop it. <laughs> Christ. I'm so going to keep this in the show as well. <laughs> Don't worry, Tom. We can't hear. We can't hear the hands. It's a beloved family pet, but Christ, is it? Why do you have to make that much noise? Right. Anyway, back to Big Jim McLean. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask you a question about the Green Berets, but now I'm going to put that on hold for a minute because we were we were talking about Dalton Trumbo a minute ago, and and I said Trumbo is rad, and I do think he was good, but he made this famous speech in 1970 when he accepted the Screenwriters Guild Laurel Award. In which he said, the blacklist was a time of evil, and no one on either side who survived it came through untouched by evil. Caught in a situation that had passed beyond the control of mere individuals, each person reacted as his nature, his needs, his convictions, and his particular circumstances compelled him to. There was bad faith and good, honesty and dishonesty, courage and cowardice, selflessness and opportunism, wisdom and stupidity good and bad on both sides. Um, 
It continues in this sort of vein. It's known as the only victim speech because he said that when you're looking back with curiosity at that dark time, as I think you occasionally should, it will do no good to search for villains or heroes or saints or devils because there were none. There were only victims. Some suffered less than others. Some grew and some diminished. But in the final tally, we were all victims because without exception, each of us felt compelled to say things he did not want to say, to do things he did not want to do, to deliver and receive wounds he truly did not want to exchange. This is why none of us, right, left or centre, emerged from that long nightmare without sin. And I don't know, I kind of think that's a load of wet liberal bullshit. Yeah. Trying, to be, trying to be conciliary, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Get the fucks, mate. The right just stormed around for years, destroying people's careers, fucking sending them to jail. Like, fuck off. Like, how, in what way with the stuff... People fucking because of this shit. Like, people like John Garfield, who's one of the most amazing... Like, he was, like, the method actor before method acting existed. He fucking had a heart... He dropped dead of a heart attack because of the stress of, like, this shit. Just because somebody <laughs> testified that they heard him whistling the International in an elevator once. <laughs> You're really gonna be like, you know, good or bad, at the end of the day, we're all people. And it's like, there is a time and a place for that, but I don't think that something as insidious as the blacklist. And especially given that it wasn't just famous people who were subjected to these horrible trials. Like it was like everyday people, like there were high school teachers who had their lives ruined because of this mm-hmm. shit. Like it's, and, and like for what that meant to them was probably a lot worse than it, what it meant to like a star who had like millions of dollars in the bank, you know, it's just, yeah. Well, it's um, Philip Roth's book, I married a communist takes on, well, in fact, the two brothers in it, one of them is a, like a high school teacher and the other one of them is like a radio star who the sort of Roth surrogate character in that book, who's a child, sort of looks up to. And one of them's a communist. The star is a communist. They both get persecuted, even though his brother's, the school teacher, is just a liberal. Right. Anyone vaguely even left of centre um, had their name traduced in all areas of life. Yeah, it's really nasty. So don't be like... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously he lived through it, so he can kind of say whatever he wants. But given that this is a free speech issue, I reserve my right to object. (laughs) Yeah, I can just imagine some of his mates from a Hollywood 10, like the guy who, like, fought with the International Brigades, just, like, listening to this, like, I beg your pardon. (laughs) (laughs) Good and bad on both sides. As far as I'm aware, like, we were putting out that good communism, making good movies, (laughs) And then people were really bad to us. Like, that's the way it looks in hindsight to me anyway. I mean, I don't doubt that some communists may have, like, said, fuck America or something. But, like, that's the thing, isn't it, that right-wingers do? They get you angry and then complain that your response is intemperate. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, what else do we have to touch what on is your... this whole favorite line of dialogue from big jim mclean because as i said there's not loads of great nuggets in there for me it's just like wow we're supposed to take this seriously but there's like the, the odd few lines i want to touch on that are quite hilarious like for example when after the police have arrived to break up this kind of really awkwardly shot fight where chairs are being flung around the room between the communists and and john Wayne, he kind of walks off with the local heads of police 
who's come and broken up. Yeah, who's played by the actual head of police in the area they shot it really? at the time. Like, okay. Yeah, he's he's credited at the start as, like, police chief, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. Okay, interesting. He can't act for fucking shit. <laughs> that, the other people have no excuse, but... Although there are some other, like, real people in there, too, I think. But he was definitely the biggest get of the real people. The communists were real communist party members. <laughs> <laughs> and he says to the guy... There's many wonderful things written in our constitution. There were men for honest, decent citizens. I resent the fact that it can be used and abused by people that want to destroy it. <laughs> well, I got my men. You don't seem to be doing so well. I wonder how Mel would have felt about this Fifth Amendment. He died for it. There are a lot of wonderful things written into our Constitution that were meant for honest, decent citizens. And I resent the fact that it can be used and abused by the very people that want to destroy it. So they walked out free again. We built a case and proved to any intelligent person that these people are communists, enemy agents, and they walk out free. Sometimes I wonder why I stay on this job. That is actually my favourite line in the film, yeah. Um, fuck the Constitution, fuck freedom of speech, let's change it. <laughs> also, what do you think of the really gung-ho ending, which is on the US military ship? There's troops going onto the ship, and they're being called out by name, and they're all of different backgrounds, and it's kind of got... What's the song that's playing? There's like this kind of really kind of American kind of tune going in the background, and a big brass band playing and stuff. And John Wayne is just kind of looking on. What did you think of that really such over-the-top ending? And trying to show that there's more solidarity in the US military than the communists will ever have. Like... <laughs> I'm sure that's part of it. There are other little, like, patriotic or, like, documentary inserts throughout it. Like, like when they first arrive on Hawaii and they go to visit the Arizona, which was the site of, like, the Pearl Harbor bombing. Like, it survived, mm. like, the aircraft carrier that survived it. And they, like throw their loas into the water and there's like this narration sort of paying respect it's very weird but it's sort of like it's sort of like a tour but then also being like yeah america we live through some stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very weird it's very, where it's like you're seeing the capital or even like the little dancers too it's sort of like a sampler of all the stuff that is in hawaii but is also representative of the u.s it's weird <laughs> Yeah. There's a couple of bits in it that I found particularly interesting. One of them was about his partner, who gets killed by a lethal injection of truth serum by the communist psychiatrist at some point in the what film. Was that, right? <laughs> I've, yeah, no fucking idea how, how that was supposed to work. He just, like, OD'd on truth. Like, <laughs> just too much truth, man. He couldn't handle it. But yeah, he, at the start of the film, John Wayne is like in Congress, I guess, in front of the committee. Well, him and his partner are there and his partner is just like fucking just like rollicking about in his chair. Like he looks like he's going to explode. Like he's just got this fury in his eyes, like just popping up and down. Like, and John Wayne in voiceover, he's just like, he fought in Korea. He hates communists. <laughs> <laughs> These are the same guys who shot at him. That's what it's. Yeah. Which is insane, because it's like, no, it is not. Those were Koreans. Those are not Koreans. <laughs> These are just some lighting dudes from fucking Hollywood. <laughs> or like the God's Not Dead professor. 
Eleven months. Eleven frustrating months we rang doorbells and shuffled through a million feet of dull documents and proved any intelligent person that these people were communists, agents of the Kremlin, and they all walk out free. My fellow investigator, Mal Baxter, he hates these people. They had shot at him in Korea. Witness excused. It's weird because like there is like this weird undercurrent of like suspicion of higher education because when his partner storms out and he's like, oh, it makes me sick. The idea that, you know, someday that guy could be teaching my kids, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, it's uh, the idea that they're specifically calling out higher education as this place where kids are contaminated. That's literally the cultural Marxism. Yeah, where the culture grows and the kids are... They learn how to, you know, burn bras and do all that bad stuff, you know, but... The 1968 Democratic Convention, man, was the wildest time, <laughs> to, to paraphrase the teacher in Dazed and Confused. Um... When John Wayne goes and confronts yeah. the doctor who gave his friend an overdose of the truth serum, and, he, and you think he's going to go up and punch him, and he just goes and said, you know, that's the difference between you and us. We don't hit the little guy. And I was watching yeah. this like, what? What? So what about all the democratically elected countries? Like, you fucking overthrown. Like, what the fuck? We don't hit the little guy, apart from the little El Salvadorians, the little Nicaraguans, the little Chileans, <laughs> the little Venezuelans, the little Mexicans, the little Hondurans, yeah. the little Haitians. It could go on and on. Yeah. <laughs> no. Still, the little Vietnamese kick their fucking asses. Yeah, I saw this very funny post where it was like, we name one cartoon character that could beat Captain America and somebody posted Captain Vietnam and I was like yes <laughs> someone sent me that earlier oh uh, so funny well I actually went to I have to say I went to Vietnam for vacation two years ago and every couple of minutes I'd be like all right I see why we lost this is just like hard to fucking walk around like I can't imagine like people are trying to kill you and you're carrying all this gear and it's really hot like, yeah, you can't wage conventional Western-style warfare there. It's like the streets of Belfast. Like, <laughs> there was no chance of defeating the IRA fair and square. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tom just mentioned the second line I was going to bring up, actually. Um, the Yeah, <laughs> we don't, don't pick hit. on the little guy. <laughs> I pretended like I wanted to make this pinch myself. It's unusual, of course. But that's what I kept pretending. The real reason was I wanted to hit you one punch. Just one full-thrown right hand. But now I find I can't do it because you're too small. That's the difference between you people and us, I guess. We don't hit the little guy. We believe in fair play and all that sort of thing. My favorite line was when we first see the communists plotting and he says, don't call me comrade for security reasons. <laughs> That's me. That is 100% me. <laughs> you talk about doing all this stuff, but like, comrade, that's kind of a, too much of a giveaway. <laughs> In case someone was uh, listening. What was the production? What was the budget of the film? Because it doesn't really look 
anything dazzling by any means and it's quite Some cheapo piece of shit yeah it's like like really incompetently made like when wayne receives this intelligence and gets ready to fly off to another location in the film he like kind of slowly clambers onto this plane and just it's so awkwardly shot it kind of just lingers on him and he just kind of gets into the plane shuts the door and as it starts taking off the door hasn't obviously been shut and it's just obviously like it must have been like, quickly slapped together and stuff it's well, there, by no means like there's just so many shots where they're on location and then all of the close-ups are done with like rear projection or even just like things that shouldn't have to be rear projection are done with rear projection and it's like did you really just like drive up a mountain shoot them walking around and then like everything else in a studio and post like it was so weird (laughs) wayne likes to fold his arms a lot and stuff and kind of put his hands in his pockets so when the cut comes in he's in a completely different position and posture and it just throws you off i mean that was quite common for a few films back then because they weren't as precise on getting the continuity but it's really blatant in this one it's 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 terrible (laughs) they need sorry what you the beach they just really wanted to like get done with shooting and then like go like I don't know, water skiing. Because there's like Wrestling. a scene that's like fucking water skiing in there too. And I was like, how? Why are you actually. <laughs> you just like fucking around, dude. Well, you know, HUAC investigators, they work hard, but they kayak hard. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that I was actually kind of impressed. The representation of racial minorities is actually not horrible in this. And I was yeah, shocked. And, like, the police chief who I was saying is a really shit actor, but is actually a cop. Like, he's, um... Yeah, he's, like, Chinese, and then there are other people, like, the woman who's the nurse on the leper colony, which was actually a real thing, and... Oh, yeah, what the fuck? Like, the leper <laughs> colony bit. Okay, we can't yeah. not talk about that. She was <laughs> formerly a member of the Communist Party, because she was like, I was formerly part of them, and I was part of the collective, and, I, you know, I couldn't think for myself. That's a really weird scene. It kind of doesn't really fit in because, well, as most of the scenes in the film, they don't really kind of come together at all. Because like the leper colony was a real thing, and it was actually it wasn't until like the late '60s when they were like, okay, lepers, you can leave now. And actually, a lot of lepers stayed there. People they chose to continue living there in this fairly remote island. But like, I know it's very strange. But even the scene that we, I guess it's like, again, trying to insert like this sense of realism of like what life in Hawaii is like. And they decided to include like the leper colony. And then the idea that you see these parents looking at their baby through a window glass and then being like, yeah, we're going to soon they're fine it's it's better than like just you know letting the blackers keep their baby or something it's like so grotesque (laughs) it is super weird it's super weird and then the fact that she's like i wouldn't touch a oh i don't i shouldn't say leper it's like what how long you've been working here how often do you make that slip up i don't know (laughs) (laughs) doesn't she say something about kind of them stretching out their hand but then she says that oh but they can't do that it's like or something along those lines that's really like what why would you say like something along what lines of what you just said there it's just like what why is that in the film is that a joke (laughs) i guess it's like an exotic thing where it's like oh yeah lepers (laughs) (laughs) sand sun lepers you know little views of hawaii <laughs> Let me explain. After being a hard-working, dedicated communist for almost 11 years, I came to my senses and recognized communism for what it is. It's a vast conspiracy to enslave the common man. Excuse me.
Are those the inmates' babies? Yes. They're taken from the mothers immediately on delivery and brought here. It's tough. At least they may see them. It's much worse later. At six months of age, the babies are removed to the mainland. It may seem hard to the parents, but it's really much better for the babies. Let me resume. I left the party, wrote a full account of my past activities and association to the FBI, and came here. So I, in a similar way to the way that I was belatedly calling out Dalton Trumbo for being a soppy liberal in his later years, there's an article that I want to bring our attention to as we conclude this episode, and it's from, I, th I think, a magazine called Photoplay from May 1948, and it's called I'm No Communist, and it's by Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> So basically what happened was Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and a few other people basically protested against McCarthyism. They basically said that it was bad and unconstitutional and so on. And then Bogart started to get a bit of shit for it. So he wrote this article and as he said, um, as the guy said to the warden just before he was hanged, this will teach me a lesson I'll never forget. No, sir. I'll never forget the lesson that was taught to me in the year 1947 at Washington, D.C. I'm not going to do this. That's When I got back to Hollywood, some friends sent me a mounted fish, and underneath it was written, if I hadn't opened my big mouth, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> it's, it's, it's going into different territories now, like Tony Soprano a little bit and stuff, so I'm going <laughs> to move on in my own voice. The New York Times, the Herald Tribune, and other reputable publications editorially had questioned the House Committee on Un-American Activities, warning that it was infringing on free speech, when a group of us Hollywood actors and actresses said the same thing. The roof fell in on us. In some fashion... I took the brunt of the attack. <laughs> it's like, it was all me. It was, woe is me. Suddenly the plane that had flown us east became Bogart's plane, carrying Bogart's group. For once, top billing became embarrassing. <laughs> and the names that were called. Bogart, the capitalist, who had always loved his swimming pool, his fine home, and all the other Hollywood luxuries. You're not helping your case here, but overnight... <laughs> had become Bogart, the communist. Now, there have been instances of miscasting, but this was the silliest. I refused to take it seriously, figuring that nobody else would take it seriously. The public, I figured, knew me and had known me for years. Sure, I had campaigned for FDR, but that had been the extent of my participation in politics. So he's kind of saying, yeah, I might may support a left-wing Democrat. <laughs> and, I may support um, the greatest, uh, the closest we ever got to socialism. He supported that guy. But he, he sounds slightly apologetic for it. Sure, I campaign for FDR, like, you know, but I mean, nobody's perfect. <laughs> the public, I figured, must be aware of that and must be aware that not only was I completely American, unlike communists who, as we've established, are all Korean, sincerely grateful for what the American system had allowed me to achieve. It was in that comfortable frame of mind that I reached New York City. I first learned how wrong I was in my reasoning through a newspaper pal of mine, Ed Sullivan. He and I had been friends for close to 20 years, and when we met at Madison Square Garden during a big charity show, he called me aside and bawled the life out of me. Stop it, Ed, I told him. Suppose I have lost a few Republicans. Likely as not, I've picked up some Democrats. Sullivan looked at me as if I had two heads. <laughs> Look, Bogey, 
he said. This is not a question of alienating Republicans or Democrats. This is a question of alienating Americans. <laughs> I know you're okay. So do your close friends. But the public is beginning to think you're a red. Get that through your skull, bogey. <laughs> he continues. Me? A red? That was the first inkling I had of what was happening. Impossible, <laughs> though, <laughs> impossible though it was to comprehend that anyone could think of me as a communist. Here was an old friend telling me just that. If it had begun and ended there, okay. But it didn't. Letters began to arrive. There were local newspaper stories and word of mouth spreading rumours across the country. Something had to be done quickly. But what? I don't know, mate, why don't you write an anti-communist article for fucking Playbook magazine or whatever it's called? <laughs> or have someone do it for you, which is clearly what happened. Yeah. <laughs> like fucking sitting down over the typewriter, like, cracking this one out. I don't think that happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> gonna go on right now. I don't think that it was real. <laughs> I was in the position of the witness who suddenly is asked, have you stopped beating your wife? Whoa, whoa. Like, what? Where did that win? come from? Yeah. It's like Owen Smith's comments on um, on like the Lib Dems in coalition with the Tories, but they're like an abused spouse. It's like, whoa, <laughs> slow down there. <laughs> Have you stopped beating your wife? If he answers yes or no, he is a dead pigeon. <laughs> Were they trying to write this like in character as Philip Marlowe or something? <laughs> Let me set it down here. But in this crisis, the newspapermen and the radio commentators of the country were standouts. A few of them, polishing apples for managing editors, acted like imbeciles, but the bulk of them went to my defence. My first statement turned the tide. It read, I'm just about as much in favour of communism as J. Edgar Hoover. I despise communism, and I believe in our own American brand of democracy. Our plane load of Hollywood performers who flew to Washington came east to fight against what we considered censorship of the movies. The ten men cited for contempt by the House on American Activities Committee were not defended by us. Cunt. We were there <laughs> solely in the interests of freedom of speech, says your Trumbo argument again, mm -hmm. freedom of the screen, and protection of the Bill of Rights. We were not there to defend communism in Hollywood or communism in America. None of us in that plane was anything but a sensible American concerned with a possible threat to his democratic liberties. Isn't that your liberty to be a communist that you're talking about? Like? <laughs> anyway, he continues. I, I wanted to do that paragraph in the voice. <laughs> we may not... It's been like a Radio 4 drama, so good job. <laughs> That's a very low bar, but... <laughs> we may not have been very smart in the way we did things may have been dopes in some people's eyes but we were american dopes <laughs> the best kind of dope yes, one. <laughs> actors and actresses always go overboard about things perhaps that's why we play benefit shows night after night like yeah going overboard if you play a benefit show that's going completely overboard why we contribute money so freely to causes we believe just and good like HUAC, why we volunteer our time and services to help sell bonds or what? <laughs> or just sell America to the rest of the world. So why is it that as loyal American citizens and taxpayers, we shouldn't raise our voices in protest at something we believe to be wrong? It was our belief, and it still is, that the House Committee easily could have identified the very small percentage of communists in Hollywood through the records of the FBI. <laughs> 
oh my god, that is such liberalism. Just like <laughs> pure grassing. Wow. There was no necessity for the vaudeville show. Klieg lights, newsreels, coast-to-coast radio broadcasts, and the dirtying of many good names with no right to speak in their own defence. Why single out Hollywood? As Bob Montgomery and Ronald Reagan said, those guys, yeah, they had their finger on the pulse. We have a minute percentage of commies, but they are under control. Why didn't Washington single out the auto industry, or the coal industry, or the newspaper guild? Why smear Hollywood? It seems to me that the thing to be kept in mind is this. On the left, in America, we have the communists. <laughs> we got communists, we got lots of them, on the left, in America. On the, it just sounded vaguely Trumpian for some reason to me. <laughs> On the right, we have the bulk of our of our population who believe with me that cures can be affected. Oh, what he's saying for himself, he's on the right. Who believe with me that cures can be affected within the framework of our democracy. In the middle, however, there are a great many Americans, liberal in thought, who are stoned <laughs> by the unthinking and don't realise that these liberal-minded folks are pure Americans. Let's realise that these liberals are devoted to our democracy. God, this is some fucking liberal hogwash right here. This is making me think that McCarthyism should have happened, (laughs) that they should have just left the communists alone and just gone for liberals. Yes! Oh my god. They could have, like, got America on the right track, like, way back then. You could have sorted out, but we've, we've gone past it, we're beyond that point now. It's full liberalism. Past the point of no return. return. Um, Let us trust that what happened to us in Washington does not discourage actors and actresses from taking active, constructive interest in our form of government. It would be tragic if, because circumstantial evidence created the wrong impression at Washington, actors should withdraw to the political sidelines. That would be downright cowardice. There's nothing cowardly about this article. (laughs) I hate communism as much as J. Edgar Hoover, honest. So long as we are opposed completely to communism and do, again, do not permit ourselves to be used as dupes by commie organisations, we can still function as thoughtful American citizens. In the final analysis, the House Committee probe has had one salutary effect. It cleared the air by indicating what a minute number of commies there really are in the film industry. Though headlines may have screamed of the red menace in the movies, all the wind and fury actually proved that there's been no communism injected on America's movie screens. As I said, I'm no communist. If you thought so, you were dead wrong. But brother, in this democracy, no one's gonna shoot you for having thought so. (laughs) Did he actually write that? That last part. Is that, did you know what he wrote? That part was actually. Wow. So that's Bogey signing it off. Like I... you know, freedom of speech is sacrosanct as long as you're a right wing person yeah. who is assuming the worst motivations of the left. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, obviously he had to cover his ass as hard as he possibly yeah. could to not like suffer the fate of all these other people who, I guess, had a backbone. But yeah, um, and you know what? He made some great movies after this. He's... Dark Passage and stuff. Like I might have got the name of that film wrong, but yeah, the point is he made some good films after he grassed a load of people up. 
Oh, actually, he didn't grass a load of people up, did he? He didn't. I know it was. He didn't pull an Elliot Kazan or anything. Bogart is not the worst of the worst here. I just thought it was that particular kind of liberalism that manages to just like not take a firm stance on fucking anything. Yep. So what were you going to say, Tom? Well, there's this interview pulled up from 1971, which John Wayne did with Playboy magazine. Uh, let me just find the section here. There's six pages of this, seven pages of this interview, but I just wanted to bring up, because it, it really just goes to how not really a, a very nice guy. Of, of course, as we've already discussed on the show, he wasn't a great guy, really, politically. But he and a stupid re- man. A, yeah. Just a, a, a stupid brainless fucking oak. Especially if you watch the uh, Michael Parkinson interview as well, when Parkinson's really yeah. pressing him on kind of, you know, you, you know, you do realise how you have ruined the lives of a lot of people and he's just sort of, well, that was the situation at the time and we had to act upon it. And it's just, he's so kind of just dismissive about the hurt and pain that he's caused in many ways. And Yeah, he's like, they weren't blacklisted. They weren't blacklisted. They were blacklisting themselves for some <laughs> shit. They're like, people get blacklisted in plenty of professions. Yeah, people blacklist themselves by like not being good. Like, that's not the fucking argument, is it? Dalton Trumbo was not sent to jail because he was writing bad scripts. Right. He's asked this question here when they say to him, in your distaste for socialism, aren't you overlooking the fact that many worthwhile and necessary government services such as Social Security and Medicare derived from essentially socialistic programs evolved during the 30s? John Wayne responds by saying, I know all about that. In the late 20s, when I was a sophomore at USC, I was a socialist myself, but not when I left. The average college kid idealistically wishes everybody could have ice cream and cake for every meal. As he gets older and gives more thought to his and his fellow man's responsibilities, he finds that it can't work out that way. That some people just can't carry their load. And he just, there's just so much of that interview. He's just going off on one. It's no direction at all. And he just completely dismisses the rights of the Native Americans as well. He's also asked, can blacks be integrated into the film industry if they are denied training education? And then his response is just, it's just as hard for a white man to get a card in the Hollywood craft unions. And then the interview just goes, that's hardly the point, but let's change the subject. It's just, <laughs> it's terrible. Totally <laughs> terrible. In fact, that reminds me of a recent tweet from a conservative commentator, Tim Montgomery. The Green Party, who, you know, I'm not a fan of the Green Party, but the Greens said, oh, you know, we now support a three-day weekend, which is like, you know, a nice policy. And Tim Montgomery, this fucking miserable Tory cunt, came out and said, a three-day weekend? Why stop there, Green Party? Let's have 12-week holiday entitlements, retirement at 45, Christmas every Wednesday. It's like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Like, yeah, cool. Christ. Yeah, why, don't, why, why wouldn't you want to build a society where that is normal? where you get rewarded and you don't have to work as much. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's, be, let's have people have a nice life. Yeah, yeah. Like, maybe you wouldn't die early if you didn't have to, like, fucking kill yourself working. But, yeah. I'm just, that actually reminds me of something in the movie where it's like they're going around right before the big brawl. And this one communist goes, I'm not from a humble background. I'm from the country club set. Chopping cotton is for white trash and the N-word. Oh, God, yeah. Oh wow! I didn't. I somehow the N word just, just shot past me. That, that was like so. That was another instance where I was like, it's interesting how it's trying to be really fair to minorities, but again, it's like 
to what end you're just supporting the system that is, you know, you're supporting a system that systematically is racist, is sexist, that puts you down, that puts you at the exact bottom. It's like this weird thing when, and this is sort of dealt with in um, the documentary I'm Not Your Negro, is that in these patriotic films or like documentaries or sort of industrial films, it always comes back to it's like, every man has a fighting chance. That's what's great about America. And it's like, well, actually, no. That's not true. That's never been true. Yeah. I mean, America as a concept that inclusivity comes into play, but then when it's the real world, it's like thrust out again. And that was so fascinating to me. But also shocking. I was like, oh, okay, you went there. Movie. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tom, do you want to maybe tie this up with some reassuring words from Tom from? from Tom Wayne, from Tom, he's not on the left, from John Wayne's Playboy interview. Oh, God, well, there's a quote mark at the top of this page where he actually says in this interview, I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated <laughs> to a point of responsibility. Jesus Christ! Wow. That's what I was saying, Just not just a deeply awful man, but a deeply fucking stupid man with just these kind of, like, backwards fucking like intellectually invertebrate fucking opinions just like the most repugnant prejudiced views yeah, <laughs> like, but also let's face it it was probably a pretty widespread view he's just said like whenever people get mad at like michael kane for saying like dumb shit it's like he's a 70 year old guy that's kind of what politics of a 70 year old white guy are Oh, yeah, yeah, but these guys, they were reactionary in their own time as well. Like, Michael Caine's always been a Tory, like, apart from when he was apparently a socialist at college, um, John Wayne has always been, like, a hard-right Republican. Yeah. I do get what you're saying, like, I think when I just got to uni and I saw the searches, I was just, like, horrified by how, like, it was just so virulently racist and sexist, but now I can take a bit of a step back from that and uh, a bit of, like historical relativism and say okay okay but those are not just the values of the 1950s that i'm trying to project my own upon but also the values of the old west so i think it's a good point but as stuff like big jim mclean and the green berets show john wayne has always been a fucking cunt yeah and the green berets is well, I guess we could maybe save another episode for that because that the studios came right back to him. John, have you got any more anti-communist movies you want to make? Well, let's take this oh, to Vietnam. Yeah. But it didn't, didn't <laughs> quite work how he would have liked. But I think what we could end with his opinions on welfare. He's asked about what do you think about welfare recipients? And he says, I believe in welfare, a welfare work program. I don't think a fella should be able to sit on his backside and receive welfare. I like to know why well-educated idiots keep apologising for lazy and complaining people who think the world owes them a living. <laughs> and, and Ian Duncan Smith would later make that the official policy of the Conservatives' Department of Work and Pensions. So, like, a very influential interview of John Wayne there. I like to know why they make excuses for cowards who spit in the faces of the police. Uh-huh. I can't bear to read this anymore. I, I no, no more. I'm clicking off the tab. <laughs> There's a re- yeah. Do that, Tom. I would, do I would, it. I would Save like yourself. to let you know that it's difficult to find, but you don't need to read no, it. Just... Stay well away. If it's using the top quotas, I believe in white supremacy. You know, it's not going to. Be- what quote will really hook people in? <laughs> <laughs> um, Christ. All right. 
Violet, it's been awesome having you on the show. It's been a really fun episode to do. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. I'm glad I watched this terrible movie to talk to you guys. Oh, thank you for coming on the show and for sending me the movie. And yeah, for for the good dialectic. (laughs) Thank you very much, Roy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, guys, you've been listening to the Real Politic podcast with Jack Frayne Reed, Tom Foster, and our guest Violet Luca. Follow us on Twitter at RealPoliticast. Check out our podcast on SoundCloud, MixCloud, iTunes. I uploaded the first episode to YouTube and then couldn't be bothered to do it with any of the others. So yeah, <laughs> keep it dialectical, comrades. Solidarity. Solidarity. Yay, Brad. I, f- I think that's good. Alright, cheers, guys. So, right. Bye. 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 It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.